with tidying, we think about putting our life in order. We think about taking control of our surroundings, right? Like not letting our surroundings control us, but letting us be in control of what's around us. We also think about picking up each and every item that's in our home, in our lives, in our offices, in our cars, and really feeling if it sparks joy. We have the exact same effect or idea with people. I believe that you should be in control of every relationship that's in your life. doesn't mean that you necessarily control the person, but that you should know who is in your life, how they play a role in your life, and make sure that those people are serving you. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Today's guest is Vanessa Van Edwards. Vanessa is lead investigator at Science of People, where she unlocks the formulas and patterns behind human behavior for hundreds and thousands of students over 200 countries. She's a national best-selling author of Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People, available in 14 languages around the world. Welcome to Spark Joy, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Vanessa. We're so glad you're here. Yes, I can't wait. We're going to spark some joy together, hopefully. Oh, love it. Love it. So first of all, we're really interested in knowing how you got interested in the study of human behavior in the first place. Yeah. So I have a kind of funny background. I like to joke that I'm a recovering awkward person. And that is because people skills, conversation, rapport never really came naturally to me, which is funny because now I'm being interviewed on a podcast. So I really had to learn it from scratch. And I became fascinated with how people work and what makes people tick and specifically the science behind it. You know, I, I had read books like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I had heard things like be yourself and be more authentic. And I wondered, is there any research behind this? Is there any science behind what makes people charismatic? Uh, what does authentic really look like? And that was the start of my lab is starting to look at the research and, and do my own research on what makes people tick. I've been following your work for so long, Vanessa, oh, and thank you. I'm such a fan of it. And I love that you really have a strong foundation research base behind these things that every human can relate to mm, in terms yeah. of speaking, networking, just the little things we do with our body language, just so many directions you've taken this study of people. And I love that we can now connect this with our world, with Kanmari and with what sparks joy. And that's what we really like to do here on Spark Joy. We like to really understand not only the layer that is tidying, but also how that connects to life and wellness. Mm. And this even expands sometimes to include relationships and how we connect with others. I loved your interview with Tom Bilyeu on Impact Theory. Yes. That was amazing. Like you explored the way that fake friendships or ambivalent <laughs> relationships have that potential to steal our joy, even though it's more obvious that a toxic person would steal our joy. Even some of our surface level friendships sometimes can do that, too. So I'd love to explore like how we can spark joy when it comes to our friendships and our relationships. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I also felt that there was so much resonance with the KonMari method and the science people method 
even though they were two seemingly on the surface different things, with tidying, we think about putting our life in order. We think about taking control of our surroundings, right? Like not letting our surroundings control us, but letting us be in control of what's around us. We also think about picking up each and every item that's in our home, in our lives, in our offices, in our cars, and really feeling if it sparks joy. We have the exact same effect or idea with people. I believe that you should be in control of every relationship that's in your life. doesn't mean that you necessarily control the person, but that you should know who is in your life, how they play a role in your life, and make sure that those people are serving you. So the same way that you want to have joy from each and every item in your home, you also want to have joy from each and every person who touches your life. And that's not just the big people. I think we often think about, you know, of course, friends and family and spouses, there's also people that you might be interacting with without even realizing it. And one of the things that I talked about on impact theory with Tom was this idea of ambivalence. And I think it's the exact same thing with the KonMari method is a lot of the objects that are the hardest to get rid of. And I know this because I use the KonMari method in my home. The hardest objects are the ones we're ambivalent about. We know it's easy to get rid of the stuff that we never use, right? It's easy to get rid of the ugly Tupperware or the sweater that doesn't fit. That we know. Same with people. We know that toxic people are bad for us. We know that the people who don't serve us and beat us down and criticize us, those are people we absolutely should get rid of in our life. The ambivalent ones though, those are the hard ones. These are the objects that you think, I might use that one day, or should I keep this around? Do I like this? And you spend the longest time holding it. It's the same thing with people. So what happens with ambivalent relationships is there are people in your life who you're constantly wondering, is this person good for me? Did I just have a good time or did I not have a good time? Or worse, <laughs> and if you have any passive aggressive people in your life, this should resonate. Was that mean? Was that, did she say that in a mean way or a nice way? Was that a compliment? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> that is the danger zone, my friends. It's those ambivalent people we have to be really careful about. Well, that's definitely one of the things that Marie talks about a lot is applying these concepts to you know other parts of our lives. So I think that's totally on target. Once you realize you have a lot of ambivalent relationships or fake friendships or just uncomfortable like relationships that you don't know what to do with, do you have any tips for what we should do next in terms of choosing joy? Yeah. So what you really want to think about is, is this someone that you can let go fully or is this someone that you have to put boundaries around? So if it's a family member or someone you work with, you might not have the freedom to just have them let go from your life. And that means you have to put boundaries around them. So that could be time boundaries. Like you only want to spend a certain amount of time with them or see them during certain time periods. That could be setting up verbal boundaries. So letting them know what you are comfortable talking with them about or communicating with them about. Or that could just be minimizing their effect in your life as much as possible, which, you know, we could talk about, I could talk about for hours, but thinking through every way they impact you and then trying to minimize it. The other option is if it's someone who is in your life, but you think that you do have a choice to back away from, thinking about how you want to gently let them go. Unlike an unwanted object, you cannot just donate a person to goodwill. <laughs> I wish it was so easy, but you can actually have a breakup with someone. But sometimes we actually do have to break up with friends. And you can do it gently by just slowly kind of letting more and more time pass between each time you see them. 
And you can also do it by being very direct and open and upfront. So thinking about how you're going to do that with the different people in your life is really important for taking control. That is so helpful. And we'll make sure to link all the information about how to really navigate those relationships that Vanessa has mentioned in our show notes for this episode. One of the things I'd like to talk about with you is your concept of ocean. And that is kind of a scale of personality traits that you've named. And they consist of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. I took the quiz or the test, uh-huh. and I scored a 67% in neuroticism. Great. Show great. I'm hoping it's great because I'm a little worried. No. Should I be worried? It's great. It's great. So I'm so glad you asked. And I'm thrilled you took the test. By the way, anyone can take it. It's free on our website if you want to go take it. So neuroticism, first of all, I wish I had named these personality traits. This is actually the most academically verified personality science. So Myers-Briggs, DISC, ah. Enneagram, Colors none of them have been academically backed up. This is the only personality test. And we actually use the official academic test, which you can go take because it is the only one that's actually been verified by research. So what the researchers have found is that across cultures, genders, and races, we all have these five personality aspects, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism, easily named ocean, as you mentioned. What we each have is we either fall high, medium, or low in each of these traits. So you mentioned neuroticism. You scored a 67%, which is a little higher on the scale. Neuroticism of all these personality traits, I think is, it's gotten such a bad rap, right? When you call someone neurotic, it's not always a good thing. (laughs) One of my secret goals is to actually reclaim the word neuroticism. And the reason for this is maybe this is also because I'm a high neurotic like you. (laughs) So I want to reclaim it. Neuroticism is how we approach worry. So people who are low neurotics, they typically are very emotionally stable. They don't worry very much. They're the people who say to you, oh, it'll all work out, right? Or don't worry about it. I'm sure it'll all be fine. Now, if you're a high neurotic and you're listening and you went, I hate those phrases (laughs) and you're like me, you're probably a high neurotic. So a high neurotic we approach worry like it's insurance. So we feel that worry is a way to insure ourselves against bad things from happening in the future. If we worry enough and we think through every potentiality, every possible option, that will protect us from something bad happening to us down the line. That is not a bad thing. Now that can sometimes drive low neurotics crazy, (laughs) but we need both high neurotics and low neurotics in this world. And ideally in relationships as well. Low neurotics get us through crises. They're very level-headed. They're very calm. High neurotics prevent crises from happening in the first place. Both of those things are incredibly important. And the one thing that I really like to explain to people who feel bad that they worry so much, and I love having a room full of low neurotics where I explain this, if they're married to a high neurotic, that often happens. I explain it like this. So neuroticism and personality, a lot of it is chemically based. It's not a choice. Our personality is not a choice. And neurotics, many of them, high neurotics, carry a special form of a certain gene. It's called the serotonin transport gene. Serotonin very basically is a chemical that makes us feel calm. So if you were driving down the street and someone cuts you off and almost hits you, you get really stressed. You burst your adrenaline, your cortisol is flowing. You're like, oh my God, I almost got hit. Serotonin is what flows in our body to calm us down. Oh, we're okay. Low neurotics 
produce a lot of serotonin very quickly. They can calm down physically, physiologically, and chemically faster than a high neurotic. High neurotics produce less serotonin and they produce it more slowly. So if I almost get an accident, I am more upset, physiologically speaking, for longer because my serotonin has to catch up. Whereas my husband, two minutes later, has forgotten all about it. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is actually chemical. And that's really important because when we get frustrated with people for their neuroticism levels, we have to understand that they can't control it. It's not a choice for us. It's actually how our body responds to worry. Interesting. So I definitely tend to be a planner. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that's really based in just trying to make sure that I've considered all of the possible outcomes, which Mm -hmm. I guess also means I'm trying to consider all the ways in which a plan can go wrong. So I definitely... I definitely see how that can apply. Okay, so I don't feel so bad about it. Don't feel bad. <laughs> I wonder if it's like an organizer thing, like if there's commonalities in terms of engineers are more this way or organizers are more this way you know, in terms of like professions and these personality types. Oh, totally. Like if I had to guess, I would bet that most fans of the KonMari method are high neurotics, high conscientious, medium to low open, Extroversion is kind of null when it comes to this, and so is agreeableness. I would guess that most of them are high neurotic, high conscientious. That's what I would guess for most. Interesting. I think that's a good study we should do in our uh, own group. I think uh, we should do that, Karen. We're going to take this back to our our friends uh, in the Kumari world and see what we can come up with, and also our listeners as well. So we'll definitely be sharing it. Send my quiz out and then uh, see if there's any patterns. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sorry, I'm geeking out. Like... (laughs) I definitely have a science background myself, chemical engineering. So I definitely like love a good study. So um, great, <laughs> love me the too. Data. So <laughs> I think that would be fascinating to see if there's any themes there. I do too. And another area that you and Marie Kondo really tend to speak a lot about is this idea of how body language's relationship to things like intuition, emotions, and personality. I really liked where you talked about the range of of how people express themselves with their hands. You characterize it as one extreme would be very stiff Mm -hmm. and the other extreme would be jazz hands Mm -hmm. and that there was kind of a good middle ground. And that was really the best place to be as far as being effective with your hands. And I really had to laugh because there's a particular presidential candidate who is jazz hands all over the place. And I really want to like him, but his hands, his gesturing is driving me crazy. And it's so interesting to see how much that is impacting my feelings about him and my perception of him. So, you know, I think it's really a very important thing. Yeah. So gesturing is uh, one of the most important aspects of dynamic speaking. Like, for example, I was actually doing a podcast a couple of days ago and for whatever reason, my, my microphone wasn't working for them and, and they thought that it was actually best for me to like hold my phone I was like, look, like I know it sounds better, but if I can't use my hands, both my hands when I'm talking, I swear you're going to be able to hear it. And they laughed and they said, you know what? We actually know, we know what you mean. Like if you are using your hands, it actually adds a kind of dynamism to your voice, to your expressiveness. And that's because our hand gestures add depth to our ideas and our thoughts and our personality. Um, And the reason for this is because our hands are our notes along with our words. So if you think about really, really good speakers, and we actually did a huge study on TED Talks. I talk about this a lot in my book where I wanted to know what made certain TED Talks go viral and certain ones just kind of fell off the radar. 
And um, when we looked at the most popular TED Talks versus the least popular TED Talks, we found that there was a really distinct difference with hand gestures. The most popular TED Talks based on view count used an average or had an average of 472 hand gestures in 18 minutes. It's a lot of hand gestures. And the least popular TED Talks had an average of 272 hand gestures in 18 minutes. It's a huge difference. And what was happening was the very best speakers were using their hands to both keep you engaged. Like We like to follow objects in motion. So if I were to move my hand around, your eye would want to look at my hands. We like to look at a speaker who has hand gestures. But also the speakers were explaining their words along with their hands. So they were saying something is big and they would hold their hand out to show you how big. They were talking about three different points and they were holding their number up for three. And this way, the brain was sort of following along with the hand and the words at the same time. It's like why children love picture books. You know, they like to see the picture, the graphic along with the words. Hand gestures are basically the picture part of our story. And so we really like to see visualizations of what we're hearing because it helps us remember it. Hmm. Is there any way that there's like too much or too little hand gesturing in terms of it taking a turn, I guess, on us? Yes. So with all body language, there's something that I like to call the spectrum. (laughs) So on the spectrum, there's sort of the sweet spot at that perfect middle point, but there's, you can always do something too much or too little. Like whenever you hear Mm -hmm. a body language expert that says power pose, Well, if you walked into every interaction with your arms up in the air, jumping up and down, yes, it would be powerful, but it would be a little bit socially aggressive, right? That's a little too high on the spectrum. Same with hand gestures. So we love hand gestures, but if you do too much movement, it's considered jazz hands. And the way that you know the difference is when you watch a video of yourself speaking, or you can even record yourself on your next phone call just to see how you look, your hand gestures should match whatever you're saying. So for example, if you're talking about something big, it should be big. If you're talking about two different things coming together, it should be two things coming together. If you're talking about levels, it should be different levels. If you're moving your hands just for the sake of movement, that's more jazz handsy. But if you are using purposeful explanatory gestures, that's that sweet spot. So you should be able to kind of match an idea with a hand gesture. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on join the club to get started. And now back to the show. Very interesting. Well, I could just talk to you for days about this. Yeah, I know. I love this topic too. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many things I want to cover because there's just so many interesting directions you've taken your research. And I love that you've also had your own Kanmari tidying experience. So I definitely want to check in with you around motivation, which is often the unicorn, right? Mm-hmm. This thing that we're trying to look for, but we can never find. And Karen and I understand very well that decluttering is not on everyone's you know, list of the funnest things to do or try. 
So we are largely in the business of really holding people accountable in terms of executing this method in a way that's really efficient and really accurate. And once and for all, as we say in the Kanmari world, and I would love to hear like if you have any advice from the scientific perspective around that whole idea of finding the motivation to continue to work on something that you find challenging or difficult and if this is at all related to some of your other research, like your personality type research or other studies that you were diving into over the years. Yeah. So I think that the way that I think about this is actually a kind of a psychological perspective of motivation. And this is interesting from both a personal perspective and also a business perspective. For those of you listening who run your own businesses, or if you're just listening because you want to be able to bring more joy into your life. When we talk about motivation, there are two different paradigms that I like to think about. I think about this a lot with my marketing of my materials when I'm working with my students or my clients. The first kind of motivation is a painkiller. So if you think about taking a painkiller, like like an actual, like an Advil or an aspirin, when you have a headache, you immediately want to go take a painkiller, right? Like, you know that you need it. The painkiller didn't have to advertise for you. You don't watch a commercial for Advil and go, yeah, you know, I should really take one of those. No, (laughs) if you have a headache, you take it and you go find it and you get it and take it immediately. It's a no brainer. The other aspect, the other thing that we think about is a vitamin. So a vitamin is something that you should take. You know, you don't have a something happen in your body to think, I should really go take a vitamin right now. You might see an advertisement for it and go, oh, I haven't been taking my vitamin D. I really should be taking my multivitamin. It's something that you have to remember, something you should take. It's not something that comes up urgently. This is the way to think about motivation. It's the same way I think about motivation with my buyers and my clients, whether it's corporate events or it's courses or it's books. I want to make my book, for example, a painkiller, not a vitamin. So when I'm trying to sell my book, for example, or I'm trying to get someone to clean up their relationships, I'm not going to say, you should do this. It's really good for you to do this. It'll make your life better. Those are all vitamin phrases. They're all things that are not urgent. I'm telling you something that you're not feeling in your body. The best thing to do is actually try to make your need or your product a painkiller. So for example, I might say to someone, instead of saying, you should buy my book, it will make your relationships better. I was like, yeah, I always want to make relationships better. That's a vitamin. What I would actually say is next time you have a really important presentation, you should buy my book. Next time you have to give a wedding toast in front of a lot of people, you should buy my book. Next time you get into a toxic relationship with someone, you're not sure how to get out of it, you should buy my book. What I'm saying is there is something that's going to happen in your life, which is painful, uncomfortable. You don't like it. Then I want you to come to me because I'm your painkiller. I'll solve it for you. And so with motivation, what's really important to think about here is yes, everyone knows they should declutter their closet. Everyone knows they should reorganize their garage. That's a vitamin. It's not as good. What you might think about is next time you open your cupboard and something falls out of it, you should come and contact me. Next time it's Christmas and you know you have to go get all your ornaments out and you're going to get a whole bunch of new stuff, you should call me. Next time you bring someone home and they have nowhere to put their stuff, you should call me. That way you're having someone think of you as a painkiller as opposed to just a vitamin. I really love this idea. What it sounds like you're saying is, is that a lot of times there's an external motivator that Mm -hmm. really creates the impetus to do something like this. Exactly. 
and it's so easy, I think, to think of like the external things and you just named a bunch of really great ones. But I guess there's also an internal motivator as well, because I notice that a lot of clients really, maybe there's nothing like that happening, but they've just begun to realize that they just don't feel good in their space mm-hmm. and that they're not able to move forward. But I guess in a way then it could be, you know, that really what's preventing them from getting that job promotion or feeling like they can get that book written because their space is so unsupportive of that. Yeah. I happen to give a couple of external ones, but I use this for internal ones as well. So for example, like when we talk about our course, the way that I market that is often internal things. So for example, have you seen a peer surpass you at work when you feel like you deserve just as much success as them? Come take our course. That's an internal feeling. Do you feel like you aren't excited for the day that you wake up dreading your day? Come take our course. Do you feel like you're stuck, that you're in some sort of bad cycle or grind or rut? Come take our course. So they're also internal painkillers, just like headaches that you can also appeal to that you should think about. So in Kanmai, we're always talking about this idea of motivators. And so this is just really so spot on, you know, regarding kind of the work that we're doing. How can someone begin to understand themselves and what motivates them a little better? So I think the most important thing to think about, and this is an aspect of neuroticism, which we talked about earlier. So I think that everyone should understand their own neuroticism better. And one aspect of neuroticism is how you worry and how you self-calm. So those are two very important questions that I think everyone should know about themselves. So maybe you worry by buying things or by eating things, or maybe you worry by talking out loud and talking to everyone in your life over and over and over again, running it through over and over head. Maybe you worry by shutting down and hibernating and not seeing anyone. You should know that about yourself because that's going to be your biggest weakness down the line. If you know that you buy when you're worried or you eat when you're worried, those might lead you to other areas later that you should work on now. The same thing is how do you self-soothe? How do you calm yourself down? And what's important for that is when you need to feel better, who do you go to to feel better? Who's the person in your life that makes you feel better? What's the activity that makes you feel better? Is there an exercise or a song or a book or a movie? Those are the things that are going to bring you out of any low points in your life. And so tackling those two questions can be a really wonderful way to set up insurance for things later in your life. Wow, those are great tips. And I am going to motivate myself by kind of making that correlation the next time I'm running up against something challenging. Before we let you go, we definitely want to chat with you a little bit about our questions that we ask all of our guests. And one is usually, what's your favorite tidying tip? I have a tidying tip. Great, great. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I don't mind tidying. So it's not something that I really hate. However, it is a vitamin for me, right? Like I know I should do it. So what I do is if I ever want to watch trashy TV, and I mean trashy TV, I'm allowed to watch it, but I'm only allowed to watch it while I'm tidying. Wow. Yeah. So I have certain shows that I cannot watch in bed. I cannot watch them while I'm cooking because I like cooking. I can only watch them if I'm hanging up my clothes or going through the things on my desk or decluttering drawers. And what's amazing is if it's a really, really good episode, I'll do more drawers and more closets just because I want to finish the episode. (laughs) Love it. That's so good. That's a great tip. And we asked all of our guests, what is sparking the most joy for you at this moment in your life? 
It's an easy one. I actually just had a baby. So Ah. she's my first. Her name is Sienna. Congratulations. Thank you. And if I ever wanted to learn about human behavior, having a baby was the best possible thing I could have done to really learn what really makes us tick. And so I feel like I'm growing personally and professionally, and she is the greatest producer of joy in my life right now. How old is she? She's eight months old. Oh, so she's a little one. Little one. Yeah. Little one. We just, uh, we just started getting her to crawl. So she's, oh. she's moving and moving fast now. So we're baby proofing everything. The baby proofing is not providing me joy though. That baby proofing is not fun. That's not fun. <laughs> yeah. I think that when they start moving, they just kind of keep moving. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Got to get those bumpers out. Got to get those bumpers out. There you go. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? You know, I mentioned at the very beginning that I think we should take more control of the relationships in our life. And so if anything sparked an aha moment in this episode for you, it would be to really think about the relationships in your life, the people in your life, and make sure you're not ambivalent about any of them. Make sure that you truly want each of them in your life and that they're bringing you joy and success and growth and they're challenging you in a positive way because everyone deserves to have relationships that make them feel good. Great. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us here on Spark Joy. My pleasure. To connect with Vanessa, you can find her at scienceofpeople.com. While you're there, definitely sign up for People School. People School is all the soft skills you wish you'd learned in school. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us to reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community, or you can join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.